Good morning, everyone. It is Thursday, October the 3rd, 2019. It is currently 9.30 a.m. Central Time. Well, I want to begin this episode by mentioning two things. Now, when I mention these two things, they may not make any sense to you. You may not understand the significance of them, but if you stay with me, hopefully they will make sense. Hopefully you will see the significance and hopefully you'll find this discussion to be interesting and beneficial, all right? So are you ready? Let's start with number one. The first thing that I would like to mention in this episode is a Greek word, all right? Let's begin with a Greek word. The Greek word is polytuomai, polytuomai. Now, if you look up this Greek word and I believe Thayer's lexicon, I think you're going to see something like polytuo. So polytuo, polytuomai. All right, now why am I mentioning a Greek word? Well, this Greek word, it shows up in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Or I should say, the translation of this Greek word shows up in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. I'm reading from the King James, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. We read this. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel. Now the word conversation right there in Philippians 1.27, that is the Greek word polytuomai. The King James translators translate it conversation. If we look at some other translations, I have them right here. If we look at the New Living Translation, it reads like this. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. All right, we have citizens. So we have we have a conversation. We have citizens. Others, the new, the new International Version, they handle this this way. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. All right? They don't use the word conduct. Well, they do have, uh, they have conduct. They don't have conversation. They don't have a citizen. All right? But you get the idea. You get the idea. Um, the, uh, I think the other translations, let's see here, uh, New American, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So you've got some different approaches to this Greek word. Again, I may make sure I just give it to you again. The Greek word is polytuomai or polytuo in the Thayer's lexicon. Now, what does this Greek word mean? Well, it means to be a citizen. All right, that's why uh, the, a New Living Translation translates it that way to administer civil affairs, manage the state, to make or create a citizen, to be a citizen, to behave as a citizen. All right. So it's going to so that kind of makes sense why behave, that's why some some focus on the idea of conduct. Um, in the King James when it uses uh, the 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 you know the phrase conversation that is conduct or manner of life so only let your conduct only let your manner of life um, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ or you could say let your conduct conversation be true of your citizenship as it becometh the gospel of Christ or let your citizenship uh, becometh as the gospel of Christ. In other words, if we, we if we go with the citizenship idea, then the, the, how most translations handle it and most commentators ha handle this, and I haven't read a lot of commentaries, is that you are a citizen of heaven. And because you're a citizen of heaven, you should conduct yourself in the correct manner. You should conduct yourself in a manner that becometh the gospel of Christ. All right, you kind of get the idea. You kind of get that idea. All right, you are a citizen. Conduct yourself in a certain way. You should should live a certain way. So there is the Greek word polytuomai, Philippians one twenty seven. All right, just a kind of a brief look at it. The different translations. We we could have we could go to an entire sermon. And I know you think, well, what what does this have to do with anything? Just stay with me. All right. So there's the first thing, polytuomai, a Greek word. Second thing, listen carefully to this phrase. Denominational unity. Denominational unity. As Christians, because we're citizens of heaven, because we're Christians, should we conduct ourselves in a way which would promote 
denominational unity. Now that is a loaded phrase. That is a loaded phrase. When we start talking about denominational unity, I mean, I've got some questions. Okay, what, what do you mean unity, right? You have all these denominations. You got Church Christ. You got Presbyterian. You got Lutheran, right? You got Assemblies of God. You got Pentecostals, all right? You, you got Baptists. Wait a minute, denominational unity. If we all come together and be unified, how, how is that going to occur? Do we throw out all of our doctrinal differences as if they don't exist? Or do we come to some kind of doctrinal agreement? And ultimately, if we, if we had true denominational unity, wouldn't that just do away with all denominations and we would just be one? Are you talking about uni just unity on a surface level where we all claim unity, we all talk unity, but we believe each other is completely wrong doctrinal and theologically? And, and, and how can you be unified by people who believe something, I mean, if you take, you know, many Church of Christ, you have people who they believe you can lose your salvation. They believe baptism is necessary for, uh, you know, necessary for salvation. Baptism is necessary for salvation. You can lose your salvation. Um, and in many Church of Christ, especially in this part of the country, it looks more of the old school type. You know, if your church doesn't have the name Church of Christ, right, you've got to call yourself Church of Christ. Um, if your church doesn't have that name, then you, you're basically not even a true church. Well, how can I have unity if someone believes my church is not even a true church? And if, if baptism is necessary for salvation, I mean, then our understanding of salvation is completely different. If you believe you can lose it, and me as a Baptist believes you can't, well, guess what? We, we don't even believe the same thing about salvation. How can we be unified? So how do you get from polytuomai, you know, I should conduct myself uh, as it becometh the gospel of Christ. I should, you know, live according, you know, I should live in a manner true of my citizenship in heaven. However you ha handle Philippians 1.27 from a translation perspective, how does that lead to the idea of denominational unity? How does denominational unity even work? Now, why am I mentioning these two things? Well, yesterday evening, before I got in my car to drive to Victory Baptist Church so I could preach my sermon at Victory Baptist Church last night, I was listening to a sermon. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we're in a very long and ongoing series that I am calling The State of Christianity in Abilene, Texas. We're trying to find out the state of Christianity in 2019, and the way I decided to do this is to focus in on what is happening within Christianity right here in Abilene, Texas, because guess what? This is the city where I live. I know these churches. This is the city I was born and raised. I know how to look up their websites and find the sermon, listen to the sermon, and then what we're doing is we're listening to the sermons. We're listening to what is being preached and taught in churches right here in Abilene, because what is happening here will give you a hint of what is happening wherever you are. All right, so that's what we're doing. I'm finding the sermons and playing the entire sermon, unedited, uninterrupted. They get to speak for themselves. And then it's your job to listen and, and try to determine what is going on within Christianity. Is it good? Is it bad? What is happening? And I'm picking from all kinds of churches. We've, I think we've listened to sermons from a Methodist church, from a Church of Christ, from Baptists, from Charismatics. We're we're just going from one church to another church to another church, all right? Good, the bad, the ugly. What is happening within Christianity? Well, yesterday, I was listening to a message, and it was based on Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And this, the Greek word, polytuomai, and this idea of denominational unity, both things were mentioned. And, well... I want to talk a little bit about it, and then I'm going to play the whole sermon for you. So let's, let me do this, all right? So you got the two things I wanted to start with, polytuomai, denominational unity. When I, since I've been listening to all of these sermons, and I've done this multiple times, now, now I haven't always shared the sermons with people, say in a podcast format, but I will spend time, you know, just listening to sermon after sermon after sermon from churches all across the United States of America. And I always discover kind of an interesting thing. There are, there are a number of categories you can kind of group the sermons you're listening to in, right? 
One category, I say, these are the sermons where you start listening and it's obvious within like minutes that this church, this pastor, and this sermon has left the road that is marked biblical historical Christianity, right? There's this, there's this road that says biblical historical Christianity. You're on that road and you start listening to some sermons and it's like immediately they, they, they just rip the steering wheel to, you know, to the side. They go flying off the road. They go through the fence. They crash through the trees. They go over the cliff and they crash and burn at the bottom of the cliff and you're just standing there going, wow, I don't know what that is, but that's not Christianity. That's crazy. That's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. That's straight up whack. That's a garbage fire. That, that dumpster fire. That's straight garbage. It's just a mess. I mean, whatever phrase you want to use, you're just sitting there screaming as you're listening, going, this is apostate. This is not Christianity. And then you stop and go, you know what? Um, I'm not even going to bother with this. I'm not even going to address this. I'm not even going to acknowledge that it exists. And you get ready to walk away and all of a sudden you realize, well, wait a minute. There's like 7,000 people who go to that church. They, they, they have, you know, 500,000 people who listen to their podcast. Obviously, the pastor believes it's Christianity. Obviously, the people clapping in the audience thinks it's Christianity. And all the people listening to the podcast thinks it's Christianity. I better say something. Now, those are always the frustrating ones. You just get mad. You just get irritated. You're like, how can people not see that this is not biblical Christianity? What you think you should do is just go, hey, everyone, listen to this and not say a word because anyone who knows biblical Christianity would determine that it's not. But clearly, that's not the case. I'll give you one example. One of the largest churches in the United States of America is pastored by Joel Osteen in Houston, Texas. If you think that's biblical historical Christianity, we got a problem. You've got a problem. Historical biblical Christianity has got a problem because people no longer even recognize what it is and what it isn't. Right? So there's that category. That one is just that one just drives you crazy. And then there's another category. And this category is very frustrating because if you if you criticize the sermons in this second category, you're going to be viewed as being nitpicky just being a jerk. And, and, and so you feel like you have to justify your criticism. But let me explain what happens in this category. You have a pastor. He preaches and he doesn't say anything that's outlandishly heretical. He doesn't say anything that's outlandishly, you know, apostate. He doesn't say anything that's just absolutely crazy. In fact, most people listening to it would think it's perfectly okay and even believe it's biblical. But if you pay close attention, all right, or at least I should speak for myself, when I pay close attention to these sermons and I listen, this feeling starts kind of just building inside of me and a question comes to my mind and the question goes something like this. What has happened to highly skilled pastors and when I say highly skilled pastors, what has happened to highly skilled pastors? What I mean by that is what has happened to highly skilled pastors who are highly skilled in the exposition of scripture? Pastors who are highly skilled, who can walk into the pulpit, help everyone observe what is actually in the text, then help everyone understand what the text means by what it says, and then offer an application that is consistent with what the text means and what the text actually says. What has happened to pastors who are skilled in that way? It seems that that is a lost skill. It's a lost art. What you have today is you have pastors who are skillful communicators, not skillful in expounding the scriptures and exegeting the scriptures. They are skilled communicators. And here's the thing. People, people will hear someone who is highly skilled in communicating and be drawn to that even though the scriptures are not being handled in the best way possible or even being handled correctly. It, it, it's not crazy apostate, but they're just not handling the text in a skillful way. But because they're a good communicator, they have a church of 10,000 people and everyone says that was an amazing sermon. 
you'll hear one of these sermons and people are like, that was really good. I really liked it. And you're like, did you like the way the, pa- the person communicated or did you re- see at all that they did not actually handle the text correctly? Now, when you point this out, people get offended and they think you're being mean. And it's hard to show them because it's not the first category of crazy apostasy. It sounds biblical. They, 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 they give you some information about the text. It sounds good, but you've got to dig in a little deeper. See, I think today we have churches filled with pastors who are highly skilled, but they're highly skilled in communication. Their timing is excellent. They pronounce everything perfectly. They sound authoritative, right? They've got good comedic timing. They can tell those jokes. Oh, they're, they, they, they're very good with the, their inflection. They, can, they get loud when they need to get, get soft when they need to get soft. Sound sincere. Uh, they can, they, they're very emotive. They, 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 they bring forth emotion. They're just good communicators. They can tell a story perfectly. They read the text without stumbling over themselves. They're good communicators, and people are drawn to good communicators. That's human nature, all right? However, however, when it comes to the preaching of God's word, we have to put something before the, the skill of the communicator. We have to put their skill in expounding the scriptures first. We have pastors today who are highly skilled communicators, They're highly skilled managers. They can manage a large church. They can manage a staff. They're good managers. They're good good at influencing people. They're a people person. They've got a good personality. Those are all great skills. But the skill that should matter the most in the church is the handling of the scriptures. Now, no pastor is perfect. No pastor is perfect. We're all flawed. We all make mistakes. We all sin. I'm not speaking of perfection. I'm speaking that that in spite of our imperfection and in spite of our failings, that the one thing we should strive to be is the best at expounding the scriptures. Now, I say all of that. I know this is a lengthy intro, but that's okay. I say all of that because in the sermon that I heard yesterday evening, on Philippians 1.27, he doesn't say anything crazy apostate. He doesn't say anything crazy, but, well, I mean, it depends on what you, depends on your view on denominational unity, okay? You know, that that gets a little scary right there, but this is what he does. He takes Philippians 1.27, all right? Now, if you read Philippians 1.27, you notice something really quick. Watch. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now you'll notice something there. Obviously, if we know anything about the book of Philippians, Paul is the author. And he's speaking to someone specifically. He's speaking to a group of people specifically. Look look at the uh, how he, he states it. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel. Uh, and he goes that whether I come and, and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. Now, who is he speaking to? Well, if we know anything about the book of Philippians, Paul is writing to the church of Philippi. This is not a dispute. This is not an argument. If you read any introduction to the book of Philippians, most all Bibles have a little introduction. Let me read the introduction to the book of Philippians from my Bible. Philippians is essentially a thank you letter from Paul, written from prison in Rome to the church in Philippi. So Paul is writing to the church of Philippi. So when he says of you, your, ye, right, he's speaking to that church. Now, this pastor does, I believe, mention that Paul is writing to the church of Philippi. I I believe he does mention that, and good on him. But the problem is, just mentioning it is not enough. You can't just mention it. Here's the thing. Listen carefully. You have to, you have to, you have to follow through with that. You have to say, okay, okay. Not only is it true that Paul is writing to the church of Philippi, 
I have to use that fact as I'm trying to interpret the text, as I'm trying to expound the text. I've got to remind the people of it. So whatever I do with the text, I've got to constantly be bringing it back to the people at Philippi first before I bring it to ourselves. And the sermon that you're about to hear, he mentions he mentions Philippians 127 and boom, it immediately becomes about you and it immediately becomes about me. Now that's fine. He jumps, he seems to jump to application before he uh, focuses on interpretation. Okay. So again, you're saying I'm being nitpicky, but that, that's what happens. We got to at least deal with this here. All right. Now, maybe, maybe this is a big deal. Maybe it's not a big deal. I don't know. But he gives us the Greek word there for conversation. All right. Now, the Greek word is polytuomai, as I began with. He doesn't give us polytuomai. I think he gives us polio, polio, I think is how he says it. Um, and and maybe maybe he's got some source that says it that way, but polytuomai, maybe, maybe he's just mispronouncing it, you know, and that's okay. I've mispronounced Greek words a million times. I mispronounce English words a million times. So it's, it's, it's just a mistake. It's no big deal. If it's just a mistake, I want to make this very clear, it's no big deal, all right? But if he's literally giving the wrong Greek word, then that is a big deal because he's telling everyone what the Greek word is. Mispronouncing it's one thing. Giving them the wrong word is a different thing, okay? And, 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 and you have to say that that's serious because you're preaching the word of God. Now, he does give, he doesn't really give us the definition of the word in, in, in any meaningful way. Like, for example, I've got Blue Letter Bible open. Polytuomai, and if you look under the interlinear, it gives you some interesting, it's a verb, uh, it, root of the word, we got middle voice of the derivative, okay, we've got some, we got some ideas, and then we got an outline of biblical usage, to be a citizen, to minister, to minister civil affairs, to make or create a citizen, to be a citizen, to behave as a citizen, all right, now he does give some background, he does give some background, to his credit, to his credit, but here's what happens. He goes from, basically he says, okay, look, we're citizens and therefore we have a responsibility in how we should act. And somehow in all of this, Philippians 127, okay, let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, that I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. He's going to use that to get us to denominational unity. Paul is not calling for the Philippians to have denominational unity. He's calling for that church at Philippi to be unified. That body, that church, the application a pastor should use is for the, the, the church he's preaching to. That we, like if I was preaching, preaching this to the members of Victory Baptist Church, I would say Paul is telling the church of Philippi, that they stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. As the, as the members of Victory Baptist Church, we must, listen, stand fast in one spirit um, and one, uh, with one mind, striving together. How are we doing? But he turns it to denominational unity. Now, how do you get to denominational unity from this? That's that's an important question. And what is denomination? If you're going to tell everyone we need to strive for denominational unity, and he seems to articulate that their church is doing a good job in striving for denominational unity, wait a minute. Now we got a question. All right. Now, now, now what the sermon has to do is justify denominational unity because I guarantee you, Philippians 1.27, Paul is not saying, hey, join hands with people who have a completely different doctrine than us. If you're going to have unity, you've got to be unified in truth. Truth has to be the basis of unity, not just, well, we should be unified because we should be unified and let's, let's ignore doctrinal differences. And if, you're, and, and if you're going to just be unified on the surface, but you're not unified in what really matters, truth, doctrine, biblical teaching, then is that even real unity? Now, again, he, he, to me, that's a major issue. But but when it comes and, and when it comes, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to play the sermon now. Oh, there's so much I want to say. But what I want you to do is listen to how he handles the text. Listen to how he handles the text, and then you determine 
If it, and again, please note, this is not crazy apostasy. This is not like something insane. This is not, no, 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 no. Listen carefully. Uh, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that sometimes it's these little things that people overlook that over time become big things if the text of scripture is not really being handled correctly over and over and over and over again. All right? You got to get the Greek word right. You got to get the meaning right. You got to make sure your application is consistent with the text. You, you have to do that. All right? you, you may not think it's a big deal, but that's okay. I'm just going to stop. So I'll give you my basic introduction or my basic uh, uh, sermon background before I play it. This sermon was, I think, preached this last Sunday um, at South Point Church. Uh, located in Abilene, Texas. I believe it's located on Buffalo Gap Road. I think that's still Buffalo Gap Road where they're located. South Point Church, Abilene, Texas. They're in a series in Philippians. Now, what's interesting is he doesn't really connect 27 to the to the previous text. He just jumps right into verse 27. And, and it's like, well, wait, if this is a series in Philippians, shouldn't 27 have a... Right, 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 right there is already like, how... how hmm. But again, it's a small thing. It's a small thing. It's a small thing. And it's not even fair to make a major judgment off one sermon. But, you know, when I was listening, I was just like, wait, wait, okay. Philippians 1.27, telling me, okay, because if, you, if we, if we, tra- if we uh, interpret it that way, then I'm a citizen in heaven, so therefore I should conduct myself in a certain way. And then you say the way I should conduct myself is to seek unity. And the way I should seek unity is seeking denominational unity. If, I, if that's my basic outline of my sermon, hey, you're a citizen in heaven. Because you're a citizen in heaven, you should conduct yourself accordingly. And one of the ways you sh- should conduct yourself accordingly is seek for denominational unity. When I'm done with that, did I do a good job on Philippians 127? Did I just teach people to seek denominational unity? And not even explain to them, wait a minute, what about doctrine? What about truth? Did I help the people or did I set them on a course of seeking something that may not even be biblical? Those are questions you have to ask. So you listen for yourself. I know it's a long introduction. Um, I, I typically haven't done that, but that's okay. Here we go. Let's listen to this sermon. South Point Church, Abilene, Texas. You make your own decision. Clearly, there's some things that bother me, but I want to make sure you understand. I'm not putting this in category one with a left the road of biblical Christianity and crashed and burned. Some people listening to this may think denominational unity is a deal breaker. When you start promoting that, you are leaving biblical Christianity. Because I guarantee you this, the early church, (laughs) they didn't seek quote unquote, let's Let's, you know, hey, let's be unified with this group. Let No, when they, they said, this is the truth. If you want unity, submit to the truth. Okay, um, a unity has to be built on truth. It has to be. You cannot be uni- unified by, discount, by ignoring truth. I, I don't know. There's just some major issues there. All right, listen to the sermon. Tell me what you think. You can email me at newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. I'll probably be back this afternoon with another episode in our ongoing series, The State of Christianity in Abilene, Texas. And we're finding that out by listening to sermons, so let's listen to one now. God bless. If you will, let's pray real quick, and we're going to spend some time in God's Word. God, we love you, and uh, we're thankful for all the things that you're doing, God. It's a, it's a privilege and blessing to be, be here today and to just celebrate uh, the lives of children, and to watch all of this, and God, I'm just thankful that you have brought us together as a family, and be with us right now, just teach us, grow us, show us that we have a lot of things that we can do for you. We ask all of this in Christ's name, amen. Well, again, if it is your first time here, I know we've got a lot of people visiting um, because they heard the preaching was so amazing, and so you showed up today, no, we, I know my place on the totem pole, kids are awesome. Uh, but we are glad that you are here. If you're listening online, thanks so much for tuning in. Um, if it is your first time here, we've been walking through the book of Philippians for the last uh, over a month now. We're going to continue to do that for a little bit. And uh, this morning, the, what we're going to see is kind of the conduct and expectation that comes with Christianity. Like most of you know, if you are a part of something that has expectations, you're supposed to fulfill them, right? 
Like for me, like I know that whenever I get the opportunity, like when I go to a game in College Station, if you ever get to experience that with me, um, there's an expectation for me that I'm going to be loud, um, I can be vocal, um, I can get a flag thrown on me. My wife has done that. There's been some times where she's like, you're waking children up at the house. You're not even at the game, so be quiet. Like, that's just part of who I am because I feel like that's what I need to do there. A number of you understand what that looks like with the career that you have. Um, this is Abilene. We have Dias Air Force Base here. How many, how many people are either active or retired from, worked at Dias anyway? A number of you. Um, We've got some Army people here, uh, Marines, Air Force, uh, Navy. We've got most of those covered. Most of you understand that in putting on that uniform, there's an expectation that comes with that. Like you swear an oath. Like you, you live a life knowing that, hey, I am supposed to conduct myself in a certain way because of the calling that I have. And we see that in Christianity, and Paul's going to address it. And he's going to talk about that a little bit. Today, Paul begins to kind of shift, and he, he really unpacks something that they could have a really clear understanding of, and we as Americans have to kind of wrestle through a little bit. Um, and so we're going to start, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 27. And Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see, the, uh, come and see you or am absent, I may hear, um, gosh, I may hear of you uh, that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, as he kind of begins to unpack that, he's going to make a statement. And he says early on, he says, let your manner of life be worthy. Now, what's interesting about this, translating the Bible at times can be easy because we have words like fish that just mean fish. And then there's times where ancient writers would say something and we're like, we don't really have a word for that. We, in fact, had to make up like six words to say what Paul just said in one. Because in the Greek, he uses this word polyu. And it's taking the kind of a noun from poly, which is like a city-state. It kind of has a political tone. It's where we get the word politics. And then he mixes it in with a verb. And we're like, what does, what does he mean by that? Well, here's one of the things he means. You are citizens of heaven. And you need to act accordingly. Because when he says, let your manner of life be worthy, what that implies, when they read this in the ancient times, it kind of stirred up something culturally that they could understand. Most of you have probably heard of like city-states, like Greek city-states, like Athens and Sparta and all these different places. And that's kind of the connotation that he's getting at. And that's what we have to start thinking about, this idea as a citizen. Back in those days, when you were a citizen, it represented something. Like it brought about this idea that I am a part of this organization, this is, I, you know, I'm, I make this, and therefore I am going to conduct myself in a certain way. Like, they understood at times that would mean political leaders coming and saying, hey, there's an army coming. You have to support the state. You have to fight for it. And it wasn't something that people ran away from. They were excited because there was such a deep understanding as a citizen, like, yes, I get to represent this, so I'm willing to go and fight, and if I need to, to die for this. It means that at times people would go, hey, we've had a famine. We've all got to come together as citizens of this state, and we've got to support one another. And people would go, yes, I get the opportunity to do that. There was this sense of pride that came with it. And I don't mean in a bad way. It was something that was good. They understood the expectation there. And the way that Paul brings all this together is he says, you're citizens, but you're citizens of something greater. You're citizens of heaven. And if you are in Christ today, that is where your citizenship is. It's in heaven, and we have to act accordingly. We have to conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. So what does it look like? How do we conduct ourselves? Like, here's kind of the, well, what does it look like for Christian conduct? Does it just mean going to a place? Does it just mean, like, going through some obligations and some rules? No, he kind of brings it down to two big things. And the first one, we would say it's unity of the Spirit. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Unity. We have talked about unity a lot. It really, over this entire year, 
even into last year from a leadership standpoint, it was something that came up over and over and over again. We'd gone on a retreat and unity came up and we said, okay, how do we do that? And we want to model that as, as a church, as South Point Church, we, we want to show unification because churches haven't always done a great job with that. And it's unfortunate. We've been divided over different things. And there's some things that, yeah, you can be divided over. And then there's some things that maybe we need to be a little more open-handed on instead of being so closed-handed. Like when it comes to denominational things, we need denominational unity. That's why I'm so thankful that a couple months ago, you know, we got to be a part of something where there was a Baptist church, a non-denominational church, and a church of Christ that all came together. And I said, man, this sounds like a joke, right? Like these three guys walk into a bar, but it, it couldn't be a bar because the Baptists were there. So like, it's, <laughs> it's okay. Grew up in that, so those are the ones that I make jokes about most easily. But denominationally, we've been divided for too long. And he says, hey, if you're going to conduct yourself, if you're going to be a citizen of heaven, you're going to have to do it with unity. We need unity when it comes to different churches. And I'm so thankful that we're getting to kind of model that. I want us to always continue that. But we need unity there. We need unity when it comes to racial reconciliation. Like that's something that's talked about so much right now, and it's important because it shows unity. And when churches can lead out in that area, it is powerful. I remember years ago, like, I, I grew up in a place where racial tension was, was pretty heavy, um, and it was just a really racist place also at the same time. Um, and so I got to see a lot of the bad from that. Um, I got to see a lot of the good, and I think I've shared this before. I had a friend. He was the first black person in 125 years of a church's history to get baptized there. And I got to watch some of that. Like, that was a beautiful thing. But years ago, like, coming from that background, I remember we went to Kansas City, and we stayed at a church that was historically black, and they opened their doors, and, man, they just gave us a place to stay. Um, the AC went out the first night, and so they moved us to a gym, and it was great. I was very thankful for those people. Um, and I got to sit down and just talk with their pastor. And I'm like 25, 26, 27 at the time. I was like, hey, can, can we just, I want to hear some of this from your side. Like, he was an older gentleman. He'd, he'd lived life. He had really kind of led a lot of this in the Kansas City area, the idea of racial reconciliation, I mean, it was a wonderful thing just to sit down and learn that, hey, yeah, we do need to talk about this. And when your church is the one leading the way, it makes an impact. People see that unity. So we need unity in all of those areas. We need unity when it comes to, to, <laughs> to serving. We need unity when it comes to generational things. That's the beauty of this morning. You got to see little kids singing and worshiping together. Our student ministry and our, our, our students, we had college students, middle school, high school, all those, using their gifts. Like, I can't do that. You don't want me to do that. It's painful. But you get to see that, the beauty of that. I love and I always want, like, people will ask the question sometimes, say, what's your kind of target audience at your church? Um, people. That's my target audience. People. <laughs> like, it's not, I don't want just one certain kind, everybody that walks in and looks like me. It's going to be weird. It's going to look like a cult after a while. We want this to be multi-generational. We want our kids worshiping and growing and loving Jesus. We want college students. We want young adults. We want people, if you're older and later in life, wherever. We want all of those coming together so that we can worship together, so we can talk together and grow. There's things that can be learned all over the place within that. And when we have unity in those areas, everyone grows together. And so we need to worship together. Like right now, I love this. We get the opportunity. Yeah, if your kids are crazy, that's all right. Early on, I had a guy that told me, like, look, if you can't preach over a baby, you're in the wrong job. I'm like, okay, I'll take that to mind. We get to worship together. We get to serve together. We get to give together. And we have been called to do all of those things together in unity. And so when we have something like the pantry, we get the opportunity to come together and reach out to our community. When we do things at Christmas, we get the opportunity to come together and reach out to our community. We've been called to do that together in unity, doing it together, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So, one, we've been called to be unified, but Paul also says um, in verse 27, he says, of one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I would call this aggressive Christianity. 
Like, we need to conduct ourselves in aggressive Christianity. I want to explain that a little bit. I don't mean we run out of here and you find somebody and you put them against the wall and tell them, you need Jesus. Like, that's not what we're getting at. I don't know if you've seen the video. There's a guy, I don't know who it is, but he's preaching, and he's talking about a kid. He's like, I was a student pastor one time, and there's this kid my student ministry. Man, he just knew all the buttons to push. And one day I was trying to, trying to do something, and he just kept messing with me, messing with me. And he said, man, I just punched that kid right in the chest crumpled that kid. He said, I looked down and said, when are you going to quit playing games with God? You know what? That boy got saved that night. I'm like, gosh, like, yeah, because he probably wanted you to stop hitting him. Like, he just said whatever. Like, that's not the aggressive Christianity that I'm talking about. But too often, we have become very relaxed in our Christian conduct. And we don't actively go out looking at how can I aggressively push back darkness? How can I aggressively share the gospel and see it spread? Because I want to see that spread. If you go through FPU, he talks about this gazelle intensity of paying off your debt, this idea of aggression moving forward. That we need some of that. Because we know if you're in Christ, you know the good news of the gospel. You know the hope that comes with that. Why would we not aggressively want to get that out there? Walking hand in hand, striving in the faith. Because it's not that we look out and go, man, what has this world come to? Like some, so many times, that's where we're at Christianity. We kind of look at the world and go, what has it come to? All this is messed up. There's nothing we can do. No, it's not what's the world come to. We know what's come to the world. Like we know the gospel. We know Jesus Christ. Why would we not want to aggressively share that? And so we need to engage people. Like, you got friends, you got neighbors. Like, as if you're in life groups right now, you know, we're kind of walking through. We talked to this idea of like, loving your neighbor, getting to know them, engaging them. We need to engage the community that God has given us. Like, he's placed you in Abilene, Texas in 2019 because that's exactly where you needed to be. He placed other people in other time periods because that's where they needed to be. But God has put you in this place. And we get the opportunity to reach out and share the gospel with people, to live that out, to be the gospel. And so we need to engage the people that are around us. We need to reach out. That's what we call it a culture of invite, like saying, hey, I want you to be able to come and get connected with people. Like if you're looking for community, we have community here. And we have community through the greatest thing. What brings all of this together? What makes all of this possible? The unity that comes with the gospel. And we get to share that with people, and we need to be engaging them. We need to be reaching out. We get the opportunity to do this. And we conduct ourselves in that way because we know, hey, it's not about me. It's because I've been called. I'm a citizen of heaven, and I'm going to conduct myself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then Paul kind of changes things up a little bit. Look in verse 28. He says, and not frightened in anything. Uh, are not frightened in anything by your opponents. For this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, this is kind of a thing where we look at it and go, I, don't, I want you to repeat that. I don't know if you really heard what you said. Because if we skip down a little bit in verse 29, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him. That's just kind of like last week when he said, For me to live is Christ. We're like, yes, I love that. And to die is gain. What? Like he said, you get, it has been granted to you that you have the opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ and to know the gospel and to know the life change and to know what it means to be a new creation. And it's been granted to you to suffer for his sake. And so that's where I look at one side of it and I'm like, yeah, I'm thankful that I was given the faith to believe that God saved me, that he changed me, um, but I'm supposed to suffer for him as well? Like, what, what do you mean by that? Like, why, why suffer? Well, suffering can actually show us how effective we are in our conduct. Like, if we're citizens of heaven conducting ourselves in that way, suffering actually becomes kind of the measuring stick. And here's what this looks like. One, if we're aggressive Christians, and again, not in a military, <laughs> militaristic way, but if we're really out there, we're living the gospel, we're sharing the gospel, 
we're encouraging people and we're, you know, we're bringing things up. Suffering is going to be a part of that as well. Because when you start sharing the gospel, man, some people get offended. Some people get upset. There's pushback within that. You could be scorned. You can be challenged. You're showing people that, hey, you're a sinful person. We need to talk about that. And it's like, I don't want to talk about that. And I don't like you now. Like, there's going to be some pushback within that. Suffering just becomes a measuring stick in it. Because here's, here's a tough reality. If you're not experiencing pushback in those areas, we're probably not sharing. We're probably not aggressively sharing the gospel to even experience some of that. Because no matter how good you are at it, there's always going to be pushback. One of my professors, uh, it was actually my evangelism professor, he is one of those guys who has the ability, he can get in line at Subway, and in the process of his sandwich being made, by the end of it, there are people in tears, they are crying, they are accepting Christ, and he pays and goes along his way. I could say the exact same thing that he did, and people were like, back it up, buddy. Like, I don't know what it is about him, he has this unbelievable gift of evangelism. But even he gets pushed back. He put something up about it the other day, if he was sharing Christ with someone, man, they got very upset and offended. And this is a guy who, he's doing it in love, he's not doing it in any bashing sort of way or hateful sort of way. He truly believes, hey, the message that I get the opportunity to share with you can change your life. I know the good news, and I want to conduct myself in that way, but he, as good as he is at it, he's getting pushback. He has to suffer a little bit within that. But suffering also, really it becomes a a proof of both sides. Because if you look back a little bit earlier in verse 28, he says, and not frightened in anything, or uh, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. Now, how is that possible? Like, as we're sharing the gospel, like, it becomes this proof of salvation on one hand and destruction on the other. Probably the best example I can give within this comes from the Old Testament. If you look in 1 Kings, at the time, the country of Israel was divided. You had the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. They each had their own king. You had King Ahab on one side. You had King Jehoshaphat, really interesting name, don't recommend that one as a biblical one to put to your kids. But um, Benaiah, that's an awesome one. I love that. Jehoshaphat just doesn't quite flow off the English tongue as much. But they get together and they say, hey, I know we're kind of a divided country right now. But you know what? There's some areas that we could take over. You think we should do it? He said, yeah. And Jehoshaphat said, hey, but before we do that, you know, he's a pretty good king. He says, we should probably inquire of the Lord whether or not we should do this before we go marching off to war. And Ahab goes, okay, and he brings a bunch of prophets that are basically just false prophets. They tell them exactly what they want to hear. Yes, you go and do this, God's going to give it all to you. And Joseph just had, has this, this sense that, hey, something's, something's not right here. Is there anybody else? <laughs> do, you, do you have anybody qualified to do this? And Ahab goes, yeah, there's this one prophet. Uh, his name's uh, Micaiah. But I really don't like him. Every time he opens his mouth, he says something bad about me. Turns out Ahab wasn't a good king. Um, And Jehoshaphat goes, yeah, let's bring that guy. And he comes in, and he doesn't give him that same message. He jokingly does it at first, and then he goes, no, be serious. And he says, okay, um, I had a vision from the Lord. Man, your armies are scattered like sheep without a shepherd. You go off to battle, and that's what's going to happen. And Ahab goes, see, I told you every time he opens his mouth, he says something bad about me. Well, they didn't listen to him. And they went off to battle, and that's exactly what happened. And so the prophet who brought the true word, who spoke, and man, it wasn't, it wasn't pleasant. He had to suffer for it. He was shunned, and they didn't like having him around. It was proof for his side, and it was destruction for the other side. And so, yeah, when we suffer sometimes, that's the tough thing. As we're suffering through things, sometimes it shows, yes, I am conducting myself in the manner and way that's called and worthy, but sometimes it shows destruction on the other. But at the same time, that's, I would rather leave the results in that to God. And so when we leave this place today and we go out, we get the opportunity to be unified. We get the opportunity to be unified within our families, the blessings that God's given us in them. 
We get the opportunity to be unified as a church, as a body coming together to reach out to the community and time and place that God has put us in. Like he's given us this time, he's given us his word, and we get the opportunity to be unified and take that out. We get the opportunity to go and live aggressive Christianity and to really look at our lives and go, what, what do I need to be doing? What has God called me to? What's my ministry? How do I walk within that? Knowing that, hey, it's not, it's not about what's the world come to, it's about what's come to the world. We know this message. If we're in Christ, we're citizens of heaven. We get the opportunity to act accordingly. So I'd encourage us, let's do that this week. All right, let's pray. God, we love you. God, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for how you teach us within it. And God, I'm thankful for the calling that puts on us. God, you have given us the opportunity to be citizens of heaven. God, the excitement that that brings, it does bring a lot of expectation. And the way that we conduct ourselves and the, the manner in which we live. But God, it also makes us children in your kingdom. And we're thankful for that. God, if there's someone here today and they, they've, they've wrestled with that of just trying to rule their own life and every time we talk about the gospel it just seems that something begins to, to stir in them. God, I pray that you would be all over them. God, they would see how good you are, that you love us immensely. God, there would be the realization that yes, we're broken, sinful people. God, each and every one of us, we, we mess up. It separates us from you. But in your grace and mercy, you sent your son Jesus, and he lived a sinless life, and he laid that down so that we could experience salvation when we turn away from our own self to him. And so if that's you today and you're ready to do that, we, that's exciting. We want to celebrate that. I encourage you, write that on a Connect card. Talk to one of our staff, one of our pastors. We want to celebrate what God's doing in those areas. And for many of us, I pray that when we leave here today, we will conduct ourselves as citizens of heaven. God, in unity and in love. We love you. Thankful for everything that you're doing. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.